Hello, everyone. Hi. I don't feel like I need to say anything after that video. That was brilliant. Divisions and unity. So introduce self. Yeah, so my name is Tom. I'm one of the elders here. I've been coming here since I was about 16. And I come with my, uh, my family, but they've all disappeared because they're rowdy. Hi. They've gone upstairs. But my name is Tom. Yep. And um, it's my pleasure to bring God's word to you this morning. Uh, we are in the book of Corinthians as a church, Corinthians 1 and 2. So I spoke last week on the first section of 1 Corinthians, and he introduced the series very well. So we got to see a map, which I was really disappointed about because I love doing maps and pointing to maps and sided the map. But we're looking at the town of Corinth, um, which if, if you remember is in a, in a really important place in the ancient world. Um, and he also introduced the people of the Corinthian church. Um, the first slide is drawn by Sarah Welch, and have we got it up? Oh, we have got it up. Ah, okay, yeah, no, it's beautiful drawing. Thank you, Sarah, for all your hard work for the church. So um, this is our, our theme. And so this morning, if you could open your Bibles, it does help in reading, because we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 4 to 17, and I'll just read through this in the ESV, Okay. Chapter 1, verse 4 to 17. I will give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. But in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the te testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you will be but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For, if Christ, did not for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, I love reading through verses like this, because it, it does tend to strike me that although almost 2,000 years ago, and although we're in an entirely different part of the world and an entirely different culture, these words are still absolutely true for us today as they were then. We're the same church of Jesus Christ, and these words are as true for us as they were for the Corinthians. God's word is living and breathing, and no amount of time or cultural shift can change the truth and the meaning and power behind these words. So Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's keen 
to start his letter to the church on the right footing. He has a lot to say to them in the two books, as we will discover over the spring and the summer as we look at it. There's so much he needs to tell the church. But before he starts to unpack some of those harder truths, he begins his letter reminding the Corinthians of what Jesus has done, which is slide three, of what he is doing and what he will do. He builds them up in this first section of the text, which is centered entirely around Christ. The amount of times it mentions his name there is five in five verses. In verse four, firstly, Paul tells the Corinthians that he's always thankful for them. He's always thanking God for them, not because of their great ministry to the poor, not because they'd been winning souls for Jesus, but Paul is thankful to God because of the gift of grace that has been given them in Jesus. That is God's saving power. The riches of Christ that is handed over and now belongs to them at Corinth. That's why he's thankful. He's not thankful with what they're doing or what they have done or accomplished, but he's thankful for what Christ has accomplished in them. Notice how in in verse 4, he switches Jesus Christ to Christ Jesus, because everything he's doing is emphasizing them, to them, that they are in the saving grace of the Messiah Jesus. Jesus uh, Christ means Messiah. And by reversing those around, he's reminding them of Jesus's title as the Messiah, and that his accomplishments over their life are the number one cause for celebration. He's writing to them because he's struggling with their conduct. And it's interesting to note that he begins by almost reminding himself of all that God has done for them. He's written to them previously, so I mentioned that there's a a book that we don't have, and he's visited them before, and yet they're going from bad to worse, okay? So as a new church in a new city that would have been full of sexual promiscuity and wealth and a desire for worldly things, Paul knew he had a mammoth task in front of him. But he starts by telling them how grateful he is to God, for them. And sometimes the task ahead of us just feels simply too great. I mean, I think we're all feeling that now. I shared it in an encouragement video. And it just feels too big for us to manage. And in those moments, we must regularly remember to look back at all that God has done in our lives and the lives of our spouse and our children and those in our life group because I think as as human beings it's just so easy sometimes to see sin in people and go straight to the problems but it is so much more valuable to just step back and look at the grace that God has carried out the grace that he's poured out on other people's lives and this is what Paul is doing he's just stepping back and seeing all that God has done. And just imagine if we just began to apply that to every relationship we have, every friendship we have with our spouse, 
with our life group, in ourselves, when we're frustrated at the difficulties and the sin we see, just to take a moment and reflect of all that God has accomplished and all that God has done in the years and the decades before. I think sometimes we just need to take off the glasses of cynicism and put on the spectacles of grace. So, yeah, I, I, I put a picture of spectacles in in case you didn't realise what glasses were, but I do wear glasses, so you should know. So Paul is writing to, frankly, some of the most awful conduct that I have ever heard, and yet, without being slightly ironic, he can rejoice in all God has done for them. So I just want to look exactly how God's grace that Paul is so thankful for has been given to the church. It says that God, in verse five of slide four, that God has enriched them in every way. That is, he's increased or enhanced all kinds of speech and knowledge. Now, it's really helpful to note, as I alluded to earlier, that at this time and place in Corinth, public discourse and human knowledge were very highly valued. And as God has enriched their human abilities, they have increased their standing culturally. The gift of speech and knowledge would have made them very popular with those around them. And, and, and to those people that were outside the church, it would have made them popular too. But it also says they do not lack any spiritual gift as well. And he goes on in chapter 12 to list some of the spiritual gifts that the church has received and not to pinch any preach, but let's list them. We've got wisdom, knowledge, healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between gifts, the gift of tongues. The church didn't lack any of these gifts. And Paul is making a very important point in verse 6. See what verse 6 says. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, that the outpouring of grace and gifts on the church is confirming the testimony of Christ in their life. That is, it is proving their salvation to him. God's enrichment of their life, the demonstration of his grace is evidence to Paul, who I think is probably looking for some sort of proof, frankly, that they are in Christ. This doesn't mean that you have to have gifts from God to be saved. No, no, no. Quite clearly, that's not the case. The Bible says in Romans 10, verse 9, confess with your tongue and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will be saved. Thank you, God, that we have grace and it's not by works. But what is happening is that Paul is reminding them that God's grace is at work in their life and that is demonstrated by the outpouring of spiritual gifts that they have enjoyed. And this is true for us. God does not leave us lacking. Does not, God does not call you to give your whole life over to Jesus and then just leave you at a loss. No. It's not like my cucumbers. Last year, I planted cucumbers in the greenhouse, 
and you had to go back and water them and feed them. And it, well, it was a particularly hot summer, wasn't it? And I, you know, we may have missed one or two waterings as a family, and it was unbelievable that you return and you just found these really awful-looking plants that had wilted and died. It, was, it felt like plant torture. You know, you just sort of set them up, closed the door, and then just left them and come back, and they'd all died. God isn't like that with us, okay? He doesn't just leave us to get on with things and ignore our needs. He doesn't start us off as Christians and then forget about us. God's desire for us is the same as the Corinthians, that we as a church, as Christ Church Hailsham, should not be lacking in any good thing but possess in abundance all spiritual gifts. Can I read that again? God's desire for us is the same as for the Corinthians, that we as a church, Christ Church Hailsham, should not be lacking in any good thing but possess in abundance all spiritual gifts. That's his desire for us. God wants you to grow in supernatural gifts, and he wants to enrich your knowledge of him and have you grow in your understanding of him as a blessing to you and therefore your work and your marriage and your family and the body of the church, as well as being a demonstration of his saving grace in your life. If any of you are hungry for more of God, more of his gifts, and more of his spirit, don't go a moment further without taking this desire, this hunger, to him and asking, because if there is one thing that sections of text like this demonstrate to us as a church, is that God is so abundantly willing and able to bless us with spiritual gifts. He is so abundantly willing and able And he has so much more for us as individuals and as a church to grow into. More prophetic, more healings and healings for friends and family or or visions of prophecy that change the course of our lives. God desires that we should receive this. I mean, you have a, a church in this text, right? As you read through Corinthians, they are up to all sorts of no good, frankly. And they are swimming in blessings from heaven and enjoying the privileges of these spiritual gifts. And we can see through these verses that it's not our conduct that's going to please God. We're not going to be such good Christians tomorrow that maybe he'll give us the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. No, it's entirely by the riches of Christ and everything that he has done on our behalf And that God is now eager and willing not just to trickle them out, but to pour them out on his church. Because when he looks at you, brothers and sisters, when he looks at you as a church, he sees his son and he is so pleased to bless. The Corinthian church is the last church in the whole of the New Testament that deserves to be enriched and not lacking in any spiritual gift. And yet Paul can celebrate with them that everything everything God has done in their lives. Take Take Samson, right, in the Old Testament. You know the story of Samson, grows his hair long, supernatural strength, God blesses him. Look at what he does with it. It's dreadful. He's a terrible person. But God doesn't take it away because it's by grace that it's given. It's not because of Samson. It's not because of what he's done. And it's the the same principles at work here. 
While I was preparing for this, I prayed over it, and I had this picture come into my mind as I was praying of someone smiling, and there were loads of gaps in their mouth, and all their milk teeth had started to fall out, and their adult teeth were growing through. And it reminded me, actually, further in Corinthians, Paul mentions milk and being fed milk. And I felt like, felt like God saying, make room for what I'm going to do. Make room for new growth. Be hungry for what's coming. Because I'm just going to cause that to fall away and to give you new things, adult things, more mature things. And I really felt like God say that for us as a church, that we need to make way for the new things he's going to do. And what I would normally like to do at the end of the preach is invite people to come up and we can pray for people and, and just, I miss that, really miss that, and we grieve that. But the prayer meeting tomorrow night, there'll be an opportunity to just break out into smaller rooms and for us to pray for you, to receive from God and receive his Holy Spirit, to receive gifts for him. So I would encourage you to come to the prayer meeting tomorrow night as a response if God is stirring you this morning. And let's not forget Duncan's message to us, that we should advance. That's the word he had from God. I mean, what a topsy-turvy message, right? The beginning of a pandemic to advance? Really? Absolutely, because that's the crazy God we believe in, that nothing is going to hold God back. Why should we not be advancing as a church through the pandemic? No one else is going to, but we are. Absolutely. And we need to be persistent in asking God. You know, we can't just... We're a bit fickle, aren't we? Took Arthur to the shops. He had £3.50. No, he had £5, that was it. And we went down the toy aisle, and he wanted this and then that, and then this and then that, and then this and then that. And it just took a moment of waiting for him to persistently ask for the one thing which I knew he actually wanted to waste his money on, and not just all the other flashy magazines with a rubbish toy. And it just reminded me of the persistent widow. And I think we need to be like persistent children with God. God, this is what I want. This is what I want. Again and again and again. Not because he needs to prove it or test us, but I think we just demonstrate to him what he already knows about us. It's a bit of a mystery, really, because God already knows our heart. But there is definitely a persistence to how we should be asking Let's just look at verse 8 before we wrap up this first section. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? So, Paul looks at how God is going to sustain them and how they are going to be blameless before God when they come face to face with him. And Paul looks forward to God, for, to all that God is doing in their lives. And this is what I love, is the certainty of what Paul is saying. They will be blameless, period. No ifs, no buts, no coconuts. Let's not forget that this church is struggling, and goodness knows I am dismayed at some of my sinfulness sometimes, and continue to be, and always will be, frankly, because I'm a sinful wretch. I am. Romans 7, there's a slide with the text. I cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am, captive to the law of sin in this body. And until this body 
dies and I'm given a new one, I'm always going to be captive to that law of sin. So when I read verses like this, it's food for my soul that you are called, you are chosen to be in Jesus, and you are predestined that he has decided that you will be his child and he will present you blameless and guiltless and spotless on that final day when you meet him and see him face to face. Hallelujah. Not only that, but we as a church will be spotless and blameless on that day when he returns to his perfect bride. I don't know about you, but sometimes I really need to hear those words spoken over me. So when I get them in the Bible and I read them, it just gets me so excited because we brothers and sisters are going to be blameless before God. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where we sit this morning. So Paul looks at what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in the Corinthian church before he turns to the most important issue that they are facing. So Paul turns and and he appeals to them in the name of Jesus Christ not to be divided, as we saw in that video, but to be perfectly united in mind and thought. It turns out that this church has been painfully divided over leadership within the church, painfully divided. And he lists the names of these leaders. He lists himself, Paul. He lists Apollos, Cephas, and even Christ. So they're divided and they're split over who is the best leader and they cannot agree. The divisions of the church have literally torn the congregation apart and now there are arguments and quarrels. It's not good. Paul, the first name, was, he was the church planter and many held his leadership over Apollos and Apollos Some favoured for his great speaking and eloquence. Still others preferred Cephas, that is Peter, Jesus' disciple, probably because he was with Jesus while he was still alive. So they all had like really good reasons for favouring people. Still some even say, I follow Christ. And Paul condemns them all. He reprimands those who are divided about who is the best leader. Those who are saying, I follow Christ, they're actually rejecting the authority of the church leaders completely and are saying, none of you blokes are good enough. Only Jesus is. It reminds me of that joke. <laughs> the Sunday school teacher says, what's, uh, what's grey and fluffy? The kid says, I know, I know. Sounds like a squirrel, but it's Jesus. And sometimes, actually, Jesus isn't just the right answer. It's very easy to use spiritual language to give yourself an air of superiority. But here we see the Corinthians, they're demonstrating it beautifully. But what they're doing is actually rejecting the authority of God in the church leaders, and therefore they're causing further pain and quarreling as well. Paul is saying, Jesus is the head of the church, and in him we are all to be united perfectly in our thinking and our intentions. 
Why is Paul so concerned about division? Of all the things to begin with, with this church, why does he start with division? Because he knows the devil's tactics to divide and conquer. Absolutely. That the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Paul doesn't start with the seemingly bigger problems, like the sexual promiscuity of the church, because he knows that the divisions in leadership are far more damaging. In verse 13, Paul reminds us that the church is the very body of Christ. And so being divided as a church is dividing the very body of Christ. This is Christ who died to unite us all is now being divided. That's painful when you hear it like that, isn't it? It takes the human element of that and makes it spiritual. Paul knows how dangerous this is. He can see from their conduct that the division is the root of the problem, and that's why he's addressing it first. Now, I'm not going to pretend I know Greek, but there's something really interesting in that Greek word for unite, because the word implies that these two things that are being brought together were once separated. It's the same use of the word when the disciples are mending their nets. It's the same use of unite. It's these two fabrics being joined together. So, you know, the, the tearing is, 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 is evident in that. And it gives a sense that the division in the church has torn people from one another and there's no brotherly or sisterly unity. Now, why, Tom, have you been holding a hammer for the last five minutes? Because there's just an example here of division. With um, I've made the floor really muddy and I'm really sorry, um, but this has been in the garden for about three years, so it's almost soil. Um, but we're just going to illustrate division with a with a wedge. This, I hope this works. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, there we go. There we go. So the wedge, as it's driven in, is separating what's there. And this is a picture of what, what was happening in the church, is that they had allowed a wedge to get in, and it was pulling them apart. And I wonder what, what divisions we're facing right now. Maybe it's gossip or, or slander or unforgiveness or, or maybe there's something in our marriage that the devil is just really enjoying, just sort of just tapping it. Just doesn't seem like much is happening, but the way that wedges work is that they, they divide. It's fine. And something that was one is now two. So we must be united in our thinking, in our marriages, to love one another and forgive one another quickly, not looking at the sin in other people's lives, but looking at the demonstration of grace that has been poured out on one another, just like Paul. There's a picture of two triangles, Phil. Because the way that the devil works is he just starts with that little point. Yeah? Just get that in. Ignore it. Don't worry about it. It's only a little thing. It's fine. That's what gets bigger and bigger. What he doesn't do is the next picture. 
is start on the big end and be like, this is a huge issue because that, that's fine. We can, we can deal with big issues. It's the little issues that get in. So let's not look to the problems in people. Perhaps divisions have been creeping in. Perhaps the devil has been driving that wedge between you. Let's take Paul's example to remain thankful in the face of problems and unite under Jesus, who we worship so beautifully this morning. It's in him that we are united. Let me conclude, and then I will finish. So if the band would like to come up, I'll just make my last points. God is willing and able to increase gifts, spiritual gifts in your life. His desire for us as the body of believers is that we should have an abundance of gifts and that our very lives will be enriched by his presence, by his spirit, by his saving grace. And we know that he is working in us and will present us as blameless on that day when we see him face to face. And there will be no guilt and there will be no shame. So in light of this, in light of the fact that you are totally have access to God, don't hold back from seeking all that he has for you in your life. God also wants us to be a united body of believers, united under Christ. This doesn't mean that we all agree. Far from it. God has made us all as individuals. And as such, we're never going to completely agree on everything. Disagreement can be healthy. It's how those problems are sorted through that's important. And Paul isn't telling the church not to disagree, but he's saying in your disagreements, don't allow division to creep in and tear one another apart, but always be united under Christ, who is the head of the church and your marriage and your family. Amen? Let me pray for you, and I'm all close with a song. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you are doing in us as individuals, Lord Jesus. Thank you that by your grace, we have access to the throne. And your desire for us, Father God, is to pour out those blessings upon us as individuals, as a church. And that you are ready and able to do that. Lord, I pray that we would desire those things, Lord God. I pray that we would desire and ask for those things from you and that you would be so pleased, Lord, to enrich our lives, Lord, and have us possessing every spiritual blessing that you have. Lord, I pray, hold us under you, Lord Jesus. In our marriages during lockdown, Lord, unite us, Lord Jesus, under your saving grace. Help us to see not the sin, but the grace at work, Lord. And Father, I pray, Lord, that tomorrow night in your prayer meeting, Lord, will we just abundantly walk into all that you have for us. In your name, Jesus. Amen.